The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. You might have seen a great tech story pop up recently about a globally successful Kiwi company offering its staff the ability to work in Gisborne, where they were to open an office so their team could enjoy the lifestyle, cost of living advantages, and just having a nice life. It was just the latest in a long run of cool initiatives the company Straker Translations has put out as part of growing from a family-founded tech company into a global success with offices, partners, and 40,000-plus translators working all over the world. Coming from a background including being a paratrooper, Grant Straker is the co-founder and CEO and joins us today to talk the journey, opening up high growth to more people and what's next. Kia ora, thank you for joining us. Kia ora. Hey, um, should we start there, Grant, about opening up uh, tech and high growth to people from all kinds of um, places and backgrounds? Because you didn't have a traditional background into um, the tech world, uh, being an elite paratrooper in the British uh, Army, amongst other things. Yeah, look, and I, and I guess um, that that story or that journey is certainly um, one where I, I think I've just followed my, my my heart. In some ways, I've I've found things that I like. So you know, my story was a bit different. As I, after I'd left the army, <clears throat> I wanted to study engineering, so I studied engineering, and, and that kind of took me into computers. But I was about thirty then, so. Um, I hadn't really even turned a computer on um, until I, I and, and and what happened was I was at a um, at an engineering firm and I, I I started to use Excel to to model um, so, some calculations that we need to do and I found out that um, it wouldn't do everything I needed to so I kind of looked under the hood and went right you can <clears throat> actually program this stuff so then I taught myself to program um, and eventually the IT guys in the company were asking me to write software programs, which I thought was a bit strange that I just taught myself how to do this, um, but they were asking me. So then I thought maybe if I go and do a, a course on this, this might be something that um, makes sense. So I went off and did the course and then the, um, the instructors, I knew more than the instructor. So then that company asked me if I'd come and do consulting, but I had never worked in this industry. So then I had to do a big kind of pivot. <clears throat> and, and and I guess uh, the lesson for me was that I, I really enjoyed doing it and I was obviously quite good at it and so you know you found something you like doing and you were good at and, and you could make money out of it, it, it sort of all matched together. And, and that was 30 plus that you got into that what was the journey 
to becoming a paratrooper as well because you you dallied with a bit of kind of engineering stuff hadn't you in apprenticeships and the aeronautical industry yeah i did yeah no no because i i that's right my first ever um job when i first left school was was actually um an apprentice uh aircraft engineer um and but I was only like sixteen, and and the way that I got that job was it's not that dissimilar. Was that I didn't I left school at fifteen and didn't really have any qualifications, and then um, uh, through some contacts I was able to um, the the way that the apprenticeships worked. If you could pass certain tests, you could get in, right? So through a family friend, I was able to um, sit this um, test against a lot of people who had studied done degrees in aeronautical engineering, but I passed it, and therefore they gave me an apprenticeship. But that was in the early 80s, and I'd moved to the UK as a teenager. So my family had moved there when I was um, 13 or 14, so I'd kind of come out of West Auckland into South London. Um, and um, and basically from there, I um, yeah, I was, I was able to get in, into this apprenticeship, but in the early 80s there was a recession in the UK, so that, that airline eventually... Um, Went out of business, and and um, you know, I worked in factories and that stuff before I joined the army. What kind of a um, what what kind of things do you learn from uh, the the discipline and the team structure and the like of the army, and especially things like paratrooping, which I imagine um, uh, has a very tight knit team structure and a lot of things that you have to learn and do well. Yeah, I mean, strangely enough, actually, I was just looking on my phone a little group, but there's there's about three or four guys I served with in the, in the British Army who actually live in New Zealand now, um, and so so it's quite quite bizarre because um, <clears throat> we're all quite good friends. But um, yeah, I, look, I think um, I mean discipline for me is is it's it's not so much about you know getting told what to do or scanning to attention and all that sort of stuff. I think it's just discipline in your life that. You apply yourself, and 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 if you do the right things, you know you get the right outcomes, right? And I try and teach this to my kids. You know, if you don't, um, if you don't apply yourself to study, or you don't do do things every day that are going to get the right outcomes, you know, you you won't achieve things. So, it, it does teach you that, and I think that anything that that ultimately, um, you know, involves can can have some some quite bad outcomes if you do it wrong. So um, paratrooping or just being a soldier in general or in the military, right? If you don't get it right, <laughs> you need a lot of discipline in there in the way that you train and the way that you apply yourself and the way that you learn things. Um, so I don't think that's what it it teaches you. It teaches you that you you want to be the best you can be because if you're not on the top of your game, you know it, it can have very bad outcomes. And there's a lot of upskilling, isn't there? And a lot of honest feedback, and a lot of um, uh, you know retrospectives, and a lot of the things that people in tech have kind of um, tried to lift and get some of those ideas, but with a much um, w- with a much stronger structure around it. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think that people, um, yeah, there, there's a certain thing, you know, the, the military culture. You know, I came from a military family, so, so both my parents were, were in the Air Force. Actually, all my brothers, we all joined the Army. Um, so, you know, whether that's a genetic thing or it's just, you know, a social thing or whatever, but um, it, it it means that you 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 know that you've got to achieve things, that, that you've got to get um, uh, 
everything right that that you can't. Um, and 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 when if I look at business in general, it's the same now. You know, we did an IPO last year, which was a, a massive process. But if we didn't do everything right and really apply ourselves, you wouldn't get there. And the other thing I think it, it teaches you is, um, you know, it has ways to push you completely to your limits, right? So, you know, certainly the selection course and things like that, what they do is they get you past your physical limits, so you're relying on your mental capacity to get through. And the difference between people that pass and fail isn't off, you know, a lot of very strong, fit people that start um, that don't finish, Right, because it's a mental capacity. I think once your body's broken, once you're past all the other stuff, and you've got no toenails left, and you've you know you've got massive blisters all over you. The only thing that keeps you going is 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 to kind of achieve things. And I think in business you'll find the same is that to achieve the really really hard things, you're going to reach a point where you don't want to do it anymore, <laughs> and so you just got to keep going. So I think it does teach you perseverance. Did you did you come out of there with a bug of wanting to start your own thing, or um, you know, you know, like and, and having come out and then come back here and and got into tech and started to be interested in computers? What was the kind of path to then want to to, to start your own thing? Yeah, no, look, I don't think I I had a pathway to anything. I think I've just always kind of followed my own. Um, yeah, like I say, just following my heart. What, what do I feel like doing? And, and I think there's times in your twenties where all you want to do is you know, go surfing, sit on a beach, drink beer and, you know, play a bit of footy, right? <laughs> and and it's when, you know, it's when you should be doing it, right? Because later in life, you're not going to get that opportunity. So, um, you know, after I'd left the army, actually, I just used to play in a pub band in London. And, and that was probably some of the best years I had, just playing footy. Me and my brother and another mate, we used to just play, play pub bands every night. It was great fun, right? Especially having come out of the, out of the um, you know, really regimented way of life and I think that um, so I didn't have any great intent um, I think I knew I needed to do something that was going to make um, more money or have some sort of career as you, as you get on um, but but I think I am you know I, I learned that in the corporate environment it probably wasn't quite me um, I just wasn't kind of you know I, I probably did need to be my own boss because uh, I wasn't very good at working for other people and what what led you to um, get into the, the world of computers and tech, because the, the interesting thing with Straker Translations is that it spent 10 years not being that company, didn't it? How did you come to found the first one? Yeah, so look, I mean, basically, you know, I say, I, 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 back to that story where I, I sort of learned to code and then they asked me to be a um, contractor and, and, and so I set up a company and that was at the exact same time I met my wife, probably only about three months before that happened. Um, so then I was getting more work and... and um, We'd only known each other a few months. And so she said, well, maybe I can – she had a good job. Uh, she had been sensible, gone to university, got degrees and, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, and she said, well, maybe I can, you know, I'll start to run the admin and stuff. And then um, she gave up her her job and her company car and all this sort of stuff. Her parents thought she was insane. Um, and then um, and, and then together we kind of started to – to do it right, so then um, and then we knew we needed more staff, and it just sort of grew. But what we were doing was very specialised um, web development type work back in you know early two thousands. Um, was founded in ninety nine, so I guess late nineties, and and it was about um, it was, one of the first projects we had was was to build a, a multilingual website for Tourism New Zealand. 
So we worked with an agency and we had to build, you know, NewZealand.com in multiple languages. And so that kind of, uh, we had to solve that problem before you had, you know, you look at it now, it's easy with lots of tools and you can do that. But back then you had to build something. So um, we built this engine and then we uh, commercialized that engine. and, And I could see back then that, Back then it was, you know, you installed software and you got a license for it. So I said, maybe we, we need to commercialize this. So we, we were able to take that, turn it into a product um, and then sell it around the world. But the, the world back then for, say, startups was very different to the world now, right? So you had to, you didn't have the, the web and the cloud and all this sort of stuff to um, deploy applications on. Like it was there for just HTML websites, but it wasn't there for much else. So you had to deploy these um, applications on CDs and support them globally, and there was no capital around, all right? So um, interest rates were really high back then, so you know the amount of capital that people were going to put in to get a return out of crazy startups when you had all these barriers to, to globalisation were um, uh, wasn't going to happen. So you had to kind of bootstrap everything. Um, and I always think the companies that that went through that, I mean, I don't think startups today would have a clue about how difficult it is to try and sell software around the world without deploying it on the cloud mm. and with no access to capital, like none, right? So um, how, do, how would you do it? And so all those of us that solved those problems ultimately went on to, you know, um, I, I think, um, you know, you look at Rod Jury, he did stuff like that um, in his earlier projects. So... A lot of people who have been able to solve that, I think, you know, once the cloud came along, the world became a lot easier to, to move. So that, that was how we started and we did that. And we could see we were getting asked by our customers to plug translation workflows into our product, um, you know, around about 2010. And so what we did then was was tried to build um, some plugins. We had built some plugins for the translation industry. We tried to sell that to um, language service providers around the world, and we realised that they were actually um, in the stone age when it came to technology. And so, what we did was we realised a way to commercialise our innovation was to become a translation company. So we're still a tech company, but we went out and went right. Well, this is our channel to market. How interesting. So it started with a software innovation where you could actually easily have multiple languages happening with tech applications. But then in order to sell that and get a market, you had to build out a very un-tech company thing, which is tens of thousands of humans to do translation all around the world. Correct, yeah. And and, and I think that that's so, – so basically we had to build a services company, right? And that's what no software company wants to do. Right? <laughs> Every software company wants to ultimately – have a SaaS model, clip the ticket, and just have nothing to do with you know a, a weightless export. Just you know, <laughs> yeah. throw up more servers on the on the cloud, yeah. and off you go. And, and it's one of the big um, mistakes that so many other people who have tried to get in, you know, tech companies have have made getting into this industry because mm-hmm. it's a huge industry. It's a fifty billion dollar industry, right? So it's massive amounts of cap- cash in, in this industry. And what what yeah what 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 they didn't realise was if you don't have the services component and you don't own the customer if you like and work with the customer and solve their problems, you'll never get the revenue. And if you sit in, in the middle of it and simply clip the ticket, you're just adding to the costs, right, and the time and all these other things, right? So um, so, so that definitely was um, um, the right approach. And, and I think the what, one thing we figured out <clears throat> um, was, was that machines and humans together was how um, this industry was going to go forward, 
So how do you go about doing that, Grant? Because uh, starting from New Zealand, even if you've taken 10 years of um, mm. having the company of perfecting a bit of the technology before taking the plunge into doing that, I mean, the actual logistics of, of getting people on the ground in other places and being able to offer all the languages, how do you go about building that out? Yeah, <laughs> trust me, it was as hard as it sounds. Um, yeah, it was very difficult. We had to... Um, Trying. I mean, one of the things we found was that we could use Google AdWords to um, get customers. So, you know, to start off with small projects, and that's what we did. We said, okay, well, we could run some campaigns. People looking for translations would come, fill in a form. Um, we could manage that process very well, automate a lot of stuff. Um, while we were doing that, um, then translators would find us because they were looking for companies to work for so we could build up a pool and, and very early on like we made loads of mistakes with quality and all sorts we had used the wrong translators and we didn't have all of the data that we have now so so now we're the world's leading um, data-driven translation agency in, in that we have massive amounts of, of data that we can use um, to predetermine say quality outcomes or speed outcomes or price outcomes which which works for our, our customers but back then we didn't have those data assets right so we were kind of guessing about what should happen and and so we made a few mistakes um but we kind of got enough traction to get us through and, and it was like I can remember Merritt and I being up till two in the morning trying to process jobs and do things and just just all sorts of stuff and we had um, one guy in Europe at the time then we knew we needed to set up um, uh, because we had so much work in Europe a, a bigger um, option there so we set up uh, an office in Barcelona originally with four or five people and even that was quite a funny story I went right we're going to set up an office in Barcelona I flew over I had a a guy I knew, um, Federico, who was in Barcelona, said, I'm going to need some help. We're going to need an office, and I need to employ four or five people. So he said, okay, well, I'll help you. I'll um, put some job ads up, and uh, I'll have these people lined up ready for you to interview, um, and I'll find some office space in Barcelona. So I flew over, and um, it's quite complex setting up a company in Spain. It's not like setting up a company in the UK. So it's, it's quite a, a um, complicated process where you have to kind of get a – Spanish identity card and go through all this legal system and so I did all that <clears throat> then went and um, interviewed uh, these people and then I said right I hired um, three initially so I said I'm going to hire these three people and they were all um, uh, the, the industry the, the, there's quite a big call centre industry in, in Barcelona like American Express probably have I don't know 5,000 people and this is multi-language multilingual staff they all come from all the rest of Europe to go and sit on the beach in their 20s, you know, they finish their degrees, they all go there, work in cafes or get jobs and, you know, they're all quite highly skilled. So we found all these people and I ended up with um, uh, three women who, um, uh, yeah, were all probably sort of mid to late 20s or something like that and then uh, gave them a job and said, right, actually, we're going to need to fly you to New Zealand in the next couple of weeks or probably next week so that we can train you up and, and then we'll come back. And had one of their dads ring me up, this German, checking that it wasn't some sort of people <laughs> scam, right? Oh and then they all arrived on the plane. Then I get ring up, rung up by one of them in customs and saying, well, we've got these three women and we're not, they say they're coming here for this job, but we don't, they all don't know each other. So what's going on? Is this some sort of dodgy? So then I had to go out to the airport and trying to get them through <laughs> immigration because people didn't believe that this was. So, um, but we did. We got them trained up, and then that set us up up there. Um, so yeah, you know, it, 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 it's been a, a pretty um, interesting journey from, from those days. I mean, and 
I think all three, I think two of them still work for us out of those, um, those three. That, that's so cool. And that, that kind of thing, like you, you're mentioning there, the um, the kind of the data and uh, doing a bit of the work in the beginning and then the humans kind of coming in and making sure it's right at the end where you've built to. That's very much kind of the picture of what many people are thinking uh, a good, the good application of AI is going to be, isn't it? Kind of um, machine stuff augmenting uh what people are able to do and people working together with it. How have you gone to build up all of those um, tech and data and uh, all of those kind of elements around the business at the same time as building like a very human big platform uh, for both customers and translators? Yeah, I mean, I guess you, you, know, you, you select the right people to help you on that journey, right? So um, we, we've had a, a pretty good team Certainly, five or six in our executive that have really helped on that journey. So, Indy Nagpal, who runs our tech checkers, you know, um, so Indy and I have worked together for 15, 16 years. So, um, he'll laugh if I said I taught him everything he knows. So he'd just <laughs> laugh. <laughs> um, but no, like, he is a very smart guy and he um, builds out all of, you know, so that tech side, you know. I can have some ideas and I can help model stuff and then, you know, Indy can make sure it's built the right way. Uh, Merrin's run the operation and the services side of it. We've got a guy, David Salby, who's an Australian that lives up, um, you know, again, he's worked for us for, you know, right through this journey, right from probably 2007, 2008. So he runs the global sales infrastructure on it. So having all the right people in the right places doing the right things, I think, has been um, the way that we've done that. And, and that's remarkable to have that continuity because in so many companies, it's not the same people that are able to run up when it's small and big. It takes, you know, a very big kind of like growth mindset to be able to transition through all those stages. Yeah, and, and I guess um, it, it is, um, it, it does, but yeah, I, th- I think all of us uh, would, would would say that we've always had those skills and, you know, and it's been proven that we've been able to take it straight through to an IPO. So, it, it, you know, the, the skills were there. Um, and, 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 you know, the old adage that, um, you know, it, it's, um, you know, don't, don't um, confuse experience with ability, you know, just because we haven't done it. If your people have got the ability, they can do it. Um, but but really the, the, the key for us to get all those data assets was to build a platform that no one else had built, which was to build a web-based platform that all the translators would work in because you can't collect all these data assets if you don't have everybody working in one place. And so the rest of the industry, people were, you know, downloading stuff, working on their desktop. Translators worked by the word. They'd never worked by the hour. So you know, the big thing for us was AI is going to speed up the translation process. Therefore, translators will go faster. How do you monetize that and how do you commercialize that to the benefit of your customers and, and, and to your benefit. And the way that you do that is that you pay your suppliers by the hour while, you know, um, while things in, increase, right? So you get more throughput through and customers get a better outcome. And that has been the key to us winning some really large corporate customers around the world is that we've been able to do this. Um, but that was always our vision. So we knew right from the start. So we wore all that pain, um, you know, probably from 2010 to 2013, something like a lot of pain and, and, um, and what we could see was the minute that we had translators going much faster but producing um, exactly the right quality outcome, we knew we had solved the problem. And at what stage should you go out and get kind of, you know, big funding? Because you mentioned there the IPO that you um, built to. And, you know, that's a huge achievement. I mean, 20, 2010 to 2018 is a very quick turnaround from start to IPO in the high-growth tech space. 
Um, yeah, so we took on various amounts of funding as we went. So the first one was probably in 2013. Um, we, we got some capital which helped us set up the services infrastructure. Then we got on board um, some more capital in 2015 from um, some uh, David Kirk's Baylor um, investments out of Australia. And then um, and then some you know very small little bits of funding that we got through that time ready to take us up to the IPO. Um, and, and again, an IPO is, 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 is not a small thing. I mean, most people you'll ever talk to would only ever do one IPO in their life. Mm. And I would be in that category. <laughs> I don't mind advising someone, but there's no way that I would go through that again. That is a very, very, very hard um, process. And and I think something like 80% of the companies that actually even start the process don't finish it. Right. Right. And, and was that always part of the vision that you would um, be able to list? What does it allow you to do? Because you've, you've acquired a few companies and been able to grow in a different way since having that capital. Is that right? Yeah, well, we, we'd acquired some before. So, um, you know, we'd acquired four companies before we IPO'd. We've done one since we IPO'd, but we still have most of the capital that we raised. Um, so it does a few things. It depends on your on your business model. The, the reason that I think IPOs are important uh, is is that they, um, they, they democratise the outcome of success, all right? So if you've got a New Zealand company, for example, that's doing really well, People can invest in there and share risk with all the other shareholders, and they can benefit from it. Or funds can invest, so you know, super funds or whatever can can invest in this, the the ultimate success, and that democratizes that outcome for everybody, right? If a company stays private with a few select investors that take that risk, they're the only ones that get the the outcome. So it's important that you have capital markets where um, companies are doing it right. And at the moment, the New Zealand capital markets are um, are not in a good space, and you know. It would, Love to be not an IPO in New Zealand, but we could, you know, just the market was not there for us to do that. So, um, but obviously we have, you know, across Australia, New Zealand, it, it's possible to democratise that outcome of, of the success. And in terms of like, uh, you know, democratising and, and that idea of sharing and spreading, one of the cool things uh, that popped up recently was you're coming out and saying, look, we'd really like to be able to get more workers to be able to work in the regions and um, picking Gisborne as a place to champion. Tell me about that story. Yeah, so again, I think that you know, the whole, you know, why, why are you in business or why do you do things? Um, you know, business people generally get a bad rep and um, I think in New Zealand they get very bad press, I think, for um, for the amount that they contribute to actually making the place function, um, and and part of what we have always had that vision was was what we wanted to be a New Zealand company, and this was a big part of when we IPO'd as well. We made sure all of our IP and everything was held in New Zealand, and that we, um, you know, would remain a New Zealand company. Uh, and, and we had the option in the past, so for example, to to sell offshore, and we could have done that. And many many companies do it, right? They get to the you know point where you could get twenty million. Sale price and they and 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 people sell and I don't blame them but I think that if every company in New Zealand does that then we don't build up a tech system right an ecosystem and we don't we don't grow great tech here um, so part of our vision was that we always wanted to do that and we wanted to to get to the stage where we could build a significant New Zealand company and that could contribute back to New Zealand and one of those things was that we always wanted to do it uh, something in the regions. And, and and the logic, and, and, and you can't do it just for the sake of doing it. You've got to do it because it makes sense. And one of the reasons that it makes sense is, um, you know, houses are incredibly expensive in Auckland and our staff, um, you know, we had staff with young families and they wanted to buy houses and, and they wanted to be able to, um, you know, 
put down um, roots and, 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 and have that uh, investment going forward. So it's impossible for them to do it in New Zealand. We'd have to pay them so much money to be able to afford a house in New Zealand. They'd have it, to save it, in, in Auckland. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, sorry, in yeah, New Zealand. Yeah, in Auckland. Yeah, 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 the, yeah. The, the deposit for a house in Auckland yeah. is the actual entire price of a house in Gisborne. Correct. Right. So it's just crazy, right? So then we've gone. We, we, we actually asked them, "Do you want us to to get an office in the city so that because we're in Albany, um, so that you could all get the train in and maybe you can get a house in Pukekohe or you can get one right out west or wherever it is, but you get the train in." And they said, well, that's okay, but it would be much better if we could have an office in the region. So then we've gone out. Um, I was a, a judge at a, an event down in Gisborne, and strange enough, I have quite a few connections down there. Um, and and uh, I've got a few mates, and I've, I've been down there um, over the years. Knew some people, went, right, this is a, a good place. They've got a good little tech um, sort of hub stuff going on, and could we kind of be the um, – the cornerstone kind of stakeholders in that to, to, to start building it out. And there was some um, appeal to us to do that. So we went down said, okay, who's keen to go? Uh, we got um, about, um, I think we had six or seven from our Auckland office keen initially. And then we, we wanted to employ some people as well. So one thing we've learned is, um, you know, we had some jobs up in the um, United States that were doing customer service and stuff, and we knew that they could be done out of New Zealand. So we want all our salespeople and account managers and stuff, say, in a region like the US, but we kind of have all our production and customer service split across. Um, we're in Barcelona and, and down in, in Auckland or Gisborne. So we went, okay, well, let's just take some of those jobs out of the US. Let's put them into Gisborne. Um, let's then move some of our other staff down there um, if they're keen to go. And so, um, yeah, we've had a really good uptake. Uh, and I think we'll end up with about 20 people down there within the next year or so. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just such a magic place. Yeah, we just um, signed a lease actually on a new office down there. So we were in like a shared hub space and we're just outgrowing that. So now we've just signed a a, um, a lease down there um, in town. So, yeah, and, and the staff are getting houses. I mean, I think they've got a few housing issues down in Gisborne supply side at the moment as well. So, um, yeah, you know, we, we know the council, we know everybody, and, and, you know, it's an easier place to try and address that than yeah. it is in Auckland, right? You can you can still be five minutes' drive from Wainui Beach, one of the most no, beautiful places in the world, and, yeah. and a house is 250K, which, you know, in Auckland yeah. people, it blows their mind. And, and part of also, you know, um, opening up more pathways as well, like you've done a lot of work um, – uh, with helping to have pathways for uh, Maori background people, uh, and also just in terms of like um, translation and building connections through language, how important is that for you? Yeah, look, I mean, I think obviously, um, you know, there is a, a, I think, a growing trend where um, you know Indigenous languages and stuff are really important to people. We see it in, the, in, in Europe anyway, where there's all that, but you can see it. I mean, and, and you can see it with Terea, like, uh, like you know, it frustrates me because I'm not fluent because I'm from a generation where it wasn't taught and it was actively not, you know, it wasn't that it wasn't taught, it was actively disencouraged to be spoken, right? And so you lose that connection from, say, you know, like my mother through to me and then to my kids. So now I've got all my kids learning it and 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 um, I'd rather they learnt that. In fact, I, our oldest one, you know, he's not, you know, at school they were doing Chinese and we're like, well, he's not doing Chinese, he's doing Māori, right? And so... Um, and and that's quite an active thing, and I, and I think it does help people. And I, and I think if you look at the, I see some stats the other day on on crime or something where, um, I think it was gang members or something that actually could speak 
right, or far less rates of reoffending, or just you know, like like there's there's good evidence that you have a much cl- closer connection to your cultures and just just um, your background that, that stops you um, getting into trouble. So, um, so so that is yeah, uh, quite quite an important thing. Um, what was the other part of that? Oh yeah, what what kind of programs have you built to help people uh, get yeah. into the business and, yeah. and to foster? Yeah. So look, one thing I believe is that. Um, and, and I see it having been doing this for 20 years is just how few Māori have been involved in tech. And so I guess, you know, the big thing for me, I think I did it when we won a high tech award a few years ago, was to get up and say there's not enough Māori in, in this room, right? And um, that was down at, at an event down in Wellington. And I think what, what happened was there were some in the room that then contacted me and then we all started to, to get really involved in in how we got the message out that this is the pathway that people need to go on. And I think if you can incentivize lots of young Māori, that this is actually the the, the pathway that is going to um, work for them and you put them in place to get, the, get that mindset that, um, you know, tech is where it's at, um, you'll start to get some go down that road. And in terms of, you know, you're, you're talking as well about um, your offices where there are lots of multilingual people like in Barcelona. Like you must have so much connection with people who, who do have two languages and move so easily uh, across different cultures and worlds. It's it's so criminal that in this country we've been so monolingual and so kind of closed and narrow. Yeah, look, I mean, our, our Barcelona office is is, is insane. Like, honestly, I'll, I'll be in that office and there will be – so they'll all, no matter where they're from, they'll probably just be speaking Spanish as a rule in that office, but they'll be doing call centre stuff. So, you know, they'll be speaking Spanish to each other and then um, they'll take a call in German or whatever it is in French and then they'll go back to speaking Spanish. If I walk over, then they'll all speak English. <laughs> they'll just switch. Everybody will just switch. They'll all speak in English. Um, so it is quite weird, and some of them can speak probably four or five languages. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. how does it help the business having all of those different perspectives coming in because that's always also one of the the really big calls about getting more Māori into technology is to get more of the different perspectives into the companies. Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, you know, we get a good global perspective. So certainly, you know, with, say, say Barcelona, you get a good perspective on, on the whole Catalonia thing and how, you know, that's not dissimilar to a Māori type environment where they've got their own language and they've got their own issues and they've got all these things and, and, you, and you get a really good understanding of the history of how that's all come about and why some of them feel like that. Um, but then you get a good <clears throat> understanding, say, in Germany as well about, you know, how they feel. So, yeah, just, just having that perspective about all these sort of regions of the world and how people operate, it does help you understand what you're doing. And even, in, in, you know, and, and again, in the States, um, you know, you've got every different. You've got the east coast and the west coast, and different perspectives. So, so you know, we and, and you know, we've got offices in Japan, Hong Kong, and um, it, it is quite, um, yeah. It, it gives you a much better view about how the world operates, and I guess it gives me certainly some insight into how New Zealand needs to be successful globally. When I look at how it all operates around the world. Yeah, just before jumping into that kind of, you know, how New Zealand can be successful and people can, you've mentioned uh, your wife, who's a co-founder, and also your children there. How important is family as part of the journey that you've been on and you're on? 
Yeah, look, I mean, um, the one thing you learn is that this is a hard, brutal journey. Like, it's not a simple journey. It is true. It is brutal. That's the only way I could ever say it. That's why not many people choose it um, <clears throat> or succeed in it, because it's hard. And, um, you know, probably for us, our kids have probably suffered the most, I think. Um, they get good things and bad things, right? So they've got two parents that just work all the time. And it's all they've ever known since uh, they, they, were, they were born. Um, but on the other side, you know, like they, they get to go to Europe for four weeks every summer or they get to go, you know, they've been to some cool, you know, go and watch the All Blacks in Chicago because there's a business trade thing on and we take them, right? So they get some good things, but they, they also get the, um, <clears throat> the the thing that their parents are time poor. and that. Um, so trying to get that balance right is quite hard. Um, we don't always get it right, but I think we, we try and balance that and we do try and take the kids on on trips. Um, it's quite good. We're actually just planning a trip now to go up to Europe for probably four weeks in the summer. And um, we're just at that stage where actually we can go in business, but the kids can go in economy. We don't have to go sit in economy with them. No, it's just like that, that, that milestone. Well, like, this is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And having been through, you know, you mentioned before that, you know, the training and the life of um, the military and especially becoming a paratrooper, a very elite and difficult thing, and that, that uh, startups and growing a company is hard. Are they the same hard? Are they different hards? Like, which would you call one harder than the other, or is that a silly question? Um, yeah, no. Look, I mean, I, I think um, you know, it's always you know, what's the hardest thing you've done in your life, and and and, um, and how do you judge that? Um, an IPO would be one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I, it, it is hard, um, and 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 similarly, you know, physically, you know, all that stuff is the hardest stuff. You know, and, and again, I, I, if I go back to the military, hard and compare that to say doing an Ironman or some of the other, um, you know, hard sort of sporting events I've done, the military hard is much harder, even though physically it might not seem like you know, but but I think it's just harder because again, it, it's just designed to wear you down, and you don't get all the sports science or anything else. The whole thing is just designed to get you to the point where you've got nothing, and. Um, and and that and and I actually did a talk the other day actually to some young Maori um, in, in a hostel that um, Dr. Lance O'Sullivan's um, set up at um, Hartapetra College and um, on Sunday and he rang me up and said we would come give a pep talk to these guys and I went and told them that um, you know doing something hard that takes you right out of your comfort zone where the only thing that gets you through it is your mental ability is a good thing to do when you're young. Because once you've done that, whatever else you do, even though, you know, and physical stuff is, is probably something that you know is, is easy to do not take any money. You can go and, you know, if you haven't run a marathon, go run a marathon and get to the point where you can't do it. You know, like you can, because it, it teaches you the discipline to train to get there. You're not going to just turn up on the day. You've got to have to train. And it'll, it, you know, no matter what you do, it's going to take you to the point where you don't want to be doing it. And, and having done that you'll see the rewards when you do do it and then you'll be able to use that as a base to get through life whatever things come at you um so yeah there are different types of hard but i I think the process which is get to a point where you don't want to do something and the only thing that gets you through it is you know is being on a journey to to want it you know why do you want to do it there's got to be some some reasons that you want to get through that and um yeah and, and that you know perseverance is is a key attribute to um, success, I think. 
And you mentioned there the kind of the offices around the world and uh, that mindset. Like how important is it, you know, obviously with the translation business, it's very important to be global from day one. But for a company with such a country with such a small market, uh, how important is it to have that global mindset right from the beginning? Oh, look, I think, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of business people, I think, do very well by having domestic companies. Right, so if you wanted the easy path and you wanted to just make some money and be a successful business, you know, import something and sell it in New Zealand, right? If you want to make a difference to our economy, then you have to export stuff to, to, for us to have a, 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 you know, a higher standard of living. It's that simple. Um, so to do that, you, you've got to sell globally and, and you will run out of a domestic market fairly quickly, right? Um, so... Yeah, having having the mindset, and, and obviously for me now, having you know come from a time when you couldn't just easily go global, you can easily go global. You can access capital, and and I think that there are a few things. You know, um, one when you go global, you you want to make sure. Don't worry about how much of the company you own. Just you know, get the right capital structure to grow. Um, you know, throughout history, companies, uh, societies that prosper have you know people with great ideas, and they match it up. With, with capital and, and that allows you to grow, right? So um, getting that mix right is, is what you're going to need. I think if you try and bootstrap yourself globally, you'll struggle, and certainly in the tech industry. Yeah, for sure. And and having been through, you know, this, this cycle so far, what's next? What's what's the big goal from here? What is having that, um, now that you're listed on the um, Australian Stock Exchange, you've got uh, that wider capital ability, what, what's next for you? Yeah, I, well, I guess we want to um, just keep yeah, you know, growing a significant company is 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 I guess the key, and you could say that we've got a you know a good sized company now for New Zealand certainly, um, but yeah, tr- trying to make um, a, a build something. So so we're in a position where you know we believe we could be the world leaders in um, you know uh, human and AI driven communications, for example. Right. So at the moment it's translations but obviously we're also facilitating now we just bought a company in Madrid that specializes in audiovisual translation that sort of stuff um, so so we are now in a position where um, it, it depending on how it's deployed from where we are now and then um, and then we can go right you know do we uh, what's our next phase of growth you know is our technology evolved so much there that we can organically go out and start to Build really significant things. Do you raise more capital and make bigger acquisitions? You know what's what's the game game plan, right? But we, I guess, we want to be reasonably aggressive in our in our aim. Um, yeah, and, and and like I say, as as you grow, it's kind of weird. You, in some ways, the bigger we get, um, the less I have to do, but the more important the decisions I make are around what we do. So, um, you know, getting that balance right and, and and building out a global team where in each market. People are making independent decisions, which which they kind of already are, but and each one is growing independently. Um, then yeah, I, I don't think there's any um, initial limits on what we can achieve. And how would you define success for you? What does success look like for you? Oh yeah, that's a hard one. Um, mainly because I think you know I don't have a, a predefined vision of 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 success. It's certainly not. Um, Monetary, I don't think. Um, in terms of um, success, I think if we can build a really significant global company out of New Zealand, that um, 
and and you know it, and and it leads to and it helps other companies you know get sucked into a vortex and and, and yeah you can look at zero and say that that's been done amazingly well like you know it's a big global success it has got a vortex there's lots of other new zealand companies getting sucked in and being successful around that um you know can we do something similar i think that that would be quite aspirational and and, and neat to do um but yeah, getting enough time to go fishing probably. I think is uh, <laughs> check in on the Gisborne office and <laughs> Correct, yeah. get out there. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for sharing the story today. That's Grant Stricker, the CEO and co-founder of Stricker Translations. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Awesome. Can't wait to see what's next. Thank you so much, Tina Tiller, for producing this morning, and thank you very much for having us along in your ears. If you have uh, any suggestions of people that would be great for us to chat to, hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Simon underscore Pound. Thanks then. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited, and of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.